This message comes from NPR sponsor Grayscale Investments. Are you interested in Bitcoin but not sure where to start? Grayscale Investments offers an easy, regulated way to start investing. Learn more about their family of investment products at grayscale.co. A warning before we begin. This podcast is explicit and includes descriptions of violence. Last time on Louder Than a Riot. When I seen Bobby, man, I was like... That's New York right there. That's This is what I'm looking for. You know, the thing about what single mothers is, when a father's absent, you tend to go extra. In hip-hop, the better, the better. They're not my friends, my brothers. We done jumped in front of the gun for each other, all types of shit. Like. They were coming for not just Bobby, they wanted the whole crew. And they got the whole crew. The way Bobby Schmurder and his friends grew up in East Flatbush, it wasn't that unique. They just happened to turn their lives into music, turn that music into a career. And those careers got turned into a moment of rap infamy. Grammy Savage, that's who we are. Grammy Shooters dressing G-Star. GS9, I go so hard. But GS from a gun squad. Hot Boy sold the world on GS9. Grimy Shooters, callous, invincible, and cool. Like they grew straight out the concrete. Caricatures of black men that have frightened and enticed America forever. That hot boy video, the one that took over the internet, it makes you feel like you're standing with them outside on a Brooklyn street. But to really understand GS9 and the trouble they were caught up in and caused, you gotta understand what the camera doesn't show. So earlier this year, I went back up to New York to talk to some people who understand the community deeper than most. I didn't really have a problem raising my kids in Brooklyn. You know, because it's like where we were, we knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody. Radelja McKenzie is a 46-year-old healthcare administrator and a longtime resident of East Flatbush. But in the summer of 2012, two years before Hot Boy and the Shmoney Dance took over New York, Radelja did start to see a problem. She started to worry about her 18-year-old son, Brian Antoine. She noticed he started acting different, but she couldn't figure out why. If something was really bothering him, it's like he would have to pry it out of him. He would never be home. And when he is home, he's just himself. He was just himself, you know? Less than an hour's train ride from Lower Manhattan, East Flatbush is a working-class, mostly Black neighborhood filled with immigrant parents raising first- and second-generation kids. Kids like Brian and Bobby. And their moms, Radelja and Leslie. And as her son got older, Radelja noticed the neighborhood was getting more dangerous. There were shootings at night, sometimes in the day. She would get worried to send her boys into the world, especially since Brian had gotten so distant. So I try to give him a little space, but it's like, as a mother, you're just always worried. So I always tell him, when I text you, you need to answer me. When I call you, you need to pick up. And if I'm calling you, it's just to make sure that you're okay. If I'm texting you, I want to know that you're okay. Once you text me back, I'm at ease. But her ease was short-lived. Because unfortunately, Verdelja's instincts were right. Something was going on with Brian. And by that winter, Brian was dead. Murdered in a bodega steps away from his apartment. And the prime suspects? Members of Bobby's crew. GS9. I'm Rodney Carmichael. 
I'm Sydney Madden, and this is Louder Than a Riot. Where we trace the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. In this episode, a new perspective on the parable of the hood. In a lot of ways, Brian Antoine and Bobby Shmurda were dealt similar decks in life. They both grew up in a neighborhood that suffered from violence and poverty, where gangs and crews were a means of survival. But they both had bigger dreams for themselves than what their neighborhoods offered them. And for both Brian and Bobby, their lives were impacted by dramatic moments of tragedy, even before they turned 21. But the difference is, Brian's life wasn't just impacted, it was ended. This is a story behind Hot Boy you've really never heard. One that offers a more complicated picture than the simple stereotypes used by record labels and the law. One that breaks down how trauma touches whole communities and cuts across titles like victim and perpetrator. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Yogi T. We know that sometimes finding a moment for yourself isn't so simple, but self-care doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, it can be as simple as brewing yourself a warm, comforting cup of Yogi Honey Lavender Stress Relief Tea. With soothing aromatics like lavender, chamomile, and lemon balm, this relaxing herbal tea blend encourages you to take a moment to pause, step away from the chaos of the day, and sip your way to a more stress-free state of mind. Find your flow with Yogi Tea. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe has an arsenal of sensors and cameras that protect every inch of your home. Simply Safe has your back 24/7 with professional monitoring for break-in, fire, flooding, or medical emergencies. You can easily set it up yourself in about 30 minutes. Head to simplysafe.com/louder and get a free home security camera and a 60-day risk-free trial with the purchase of a security system. In 2011, Mariah Griffith got an invite to a party on 51st Street in East Flatbush. She went to the party's event page on Facebook to see who else was going. That's where she saw Brian Antoine's profile. What made you add each other on Facebook? I think it's because we were, like, all going to the party and the fact that the party was, like, across the street from his house. Can you tell me about the party and meeting him? Okay, so, like, before the party, like, me and my closest friends, like, we had met up at our other friend's house. We went to the party, like, we walked to the party together on 51st. And I remember, like, um, him texting me, like, oh, like, you made it here yet? And I was telling my friends, like, oh, my God, like, he really on my, like, like you know, right? like, he th- I think he liked me, you know? But they like, you like him, too, you like him, too. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I'm not here for that. Like, yeah, you know, I was trying to front. Right, right, always, always. <laughs> I was trying to front. So, um, but, like, he made it so easy, like... I remember, like, he came up to me, like, he hugged me, like, he knew me forever. Like, it was, like, one of those, like, it was, like, a homie-type feeling. And we, like, stayed each other together in that party, like, the whole time. He was just sweet. So it wasn't, like, I don't know how to explain it. He just made me feel, like, so, like, mushy. Like, it was cute. Automatic. Yeah. From, From that year, it was, like, you were just, like, stuck with each other. Literally, like, glue. Mariah and Brian dated for a year, and they made a really cute couple. In photos on Mariah's Facebook, they hold each other close and walk hand in hand. For prom, Brian matched his tie and his vest 
to her deep violet gown. When I met up with Mariah in New York earlier this year, she looks much older than the high school girl in those photos. But she still lights up when she talks about Brian. She remembers him being sensitive and caring. Even when, like, I would be irrational, like, as a young teen and, you know, he would be like, Mariah, shut up, I love you. Mariah knew a lot of guys from her neighborhood who walk around and act tough. But that wasn't Brian. She says he was cool with everybody. The life of the party and friends with the whole block. Brian um, was a people person. Brian was very easy to get along with. And I think that no one could not like Brian. Brian's mom, Rodelja, sits right next to Mariah during our conversation. And she says that's exactly how she raised her son to be. Everybody was in love with Brian. He just had this personality where you just talk to him and you just feel like you've just known him all your life because he was just so friendly. And, you know, he was outgoing. Every time he used to walk through the door, he would say, it's the way he called me. He'd be like, Mommy, <laughs> Mommy. I was like, stop calling me like that. <laughs> Mommy. <laughs> it's like very much Brooklyn too. It's like, hey, yo, yeah. hey, Mommy. <laughs> yep, and he, every time he would walk in my room, he always got to do the doggy. The dance, and I'm telling you, he could do it so good. All I need is a beat that's super bumping, and for you, you, you to back it up and dump it. And even though Brian was goofy like that, Mariah says their relationship felt serious. They were always together, and Mariah started to feel like part of the family. Brian was saying something about me on Facebook, like joking, like saying something. And, like, we were, like, going back and forth on the status. And then you text Brian. It was like, leave my daughter alone on Facebook. Like, stop talking to my daughter like that uh, on Facebook. She yeah. loves me now. Like, <laughs> I'm her daughter. Yeah, like, you know, like, feeling good. So I always remember that. That really made me feel good. And yeah, his friends would chime in and be like, yo, you got your mom on your Facebook, Facebook? page? Yeah. Bro, that's not the move. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he blocked me. <laughs> And when Brian wasn't hanging with Mariah, he was playing basketball. He played all the time. At the park during the week, in tournaments on weekends. He loved it. He even recorded videos of himself hooping at the community courts and posted them online. He wanted to go to the NBA, and he was optimistic about his shot. He always used to say, um... Mom, I'm going to be the next LeBron. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take care of you. You wouldn't have to work as hard as you're working. You know, you you always tell me that. But Brian didn't finish high school. He began working on his GED and got a job at Jamba Juice. And he kept playing ball. But it was around this time when he started to realize his dreams of going pro were drifting more and more out of reach. That's when Rodelja says Brian's optimism started to shift and then fade. The only person that could get anything out of Brian was either his friend or his girlfriend. Brian would confide in Mariah. And Mariah says one thing that always bothered Brian, even though he didn't want to let it show, was his dad 
losing touch with him after he remarried. His dad has other children, so, like, sometimes he'll tell me, like, he'll speak to his sister, and they would have spoken to their dad, but he hasn't. Like, he felt forgotten about? Yeah, kind of. And it was just, like, at I remember at a certain point, um, and I remember this vividly, because we was, like, in front of his uh, apartment door at the time, and he was just, like, really angry. He was, like, angry. And he was just, like, you know, like, F that. Like, he was just, like, you know. You can say it. Yeah, like, fuck that nigga. Like, he was just getting really, you know, emotional. And I remember him saying, like, you know, he could take worry about his other kids. And he don't got to worry about me. Like, my mother makes sure I'm good. I make sure she's good. And then he, we're going to be good. And, you know. And then on top of everything else, that's when Mariah left Brooklyn to go to college down in D.C. I felt like he was becoming distant. And, you know, I feel like as a young couple, like, we were going through um, certain things because, you know, I'm now a freshman in college. I'm away. And, you know, we're, like, working things out, trying to figure, like, the new norm for us. Brian's mom tried to brush off her fears about what might be going on with him and tell herself it was just growing pains. I just thought maybe he was sad because um, things wasn't going the way he wanted to go, you know? Like, he probably felt deserted, you know? Like, my dad Mm -hmm. left me, now my girl leaving me, Mm -hmm. you know? But on the night of February 8th, 2013, Riddell's worst fears became reality. I'll never forget that day. Okay. I started that day when I was getting ready to go to work. So as I was getting ready, he was getting dressed. So I said, where are you going? He was like, I got to go outside. I got to cash my check and stuff like that. I said, do you ever just take a moment and just stay in the house? Like, why are you always on the go? He's like, mom, I got things to do. I said, what's one of those things? Are you going to go see Mariah? (laughs) He said, no, Mom, I'm not going to see Mariah. I just have some things I have to take care of. I said, all right. So he left. I left. By the time I got home, it was like probably a little after 8. But Brian still wasn't home. As I was about to go in the shower, my neighbor from across the street knocked on the door along with the neighbor that lived across the hall from me. Then that knocking turned to pounding. Why is somebody banging on my door like that? So I was getting irritated. So I opened the door and they was like, you got to come outside quick, something happened to Brian. So I was like, something happened to Brian. So I'm saying in the back of my head, didn't Brian supposed to go to work? They said, I think he got shot. So I said, oh, my God. So I just jumped up. And she put on her clothes and ran outside, sledging through eight inches of snow. Brian was just outside of Bodega at 830 Clarkson Ave, near East 51st Street, just steps away from his apartment. He had a gunshot wound in his back. But by the time I got outside, he was already in the ambulance. So as I approached the ambulance and screaming and stuff, 
And I saw him laying there on the stretcher. The the cop was trying to talk to me, you know, trying to keep my mind sane. And he was saying, um, don't worry, your son is going to be okay. We would take, they'd taken him to Kings County because um, they're good with gunshot victims. As I got there, ran inside. As soon as I seen the doctor come out and taking off his gloves, I said, where's my son? How's my son? And then he was pulling me. He was like, um, sorry to tell you that, but he didn't make it. So then I was screaming and carrying on. Radelja told doctors she wanted to see her son. They led her into a room. And that's when I saw him laying on, his, laying on the table. And I didn't even get to say goodbye. Mariah was away at college when she got the call. I just remember waking up, like, the next morning and, like, waking up, like, and I'm in, in a panic, like, just trying to get back to New York. And I couldn't even go anywhere because of the snow. Just those words that I said to him, I play over and over before I went to work, was that, why you just can't stay in the house? If he would have just listened to me and stayed in the house, I think maybe he would still be here. Riddellja remembers how packed out Brian's funeral was. That's where she realized how many people he knew and how many knew him. I mean, we had the the whole bottom of the um, funeral home and it still couldn't hold everybody. They had to be outside. So my husband was like... Who are all these people? I said, I don't know. I don't know all these people. Yeah. He was, he didn't know a lot of people. Mm-hmm. He was very popular. That's when Adelja learned Brian was killed while hanging out with someone she didn't even know. Someone who wasn't one of Brian's close friends. People were telling her that this guy was a known member of Brooklyn's Most Wanted. BMW. I never met this guy before. I just felt like... These friends, like, I don't know, I guess he kept them away from me because he probably knew that I wouldn't approve of who he was hanging out with. A lot of people in the neighborhood would stop by Riddell's house to give their condolences. And they gave her something else, too. They start saying, I know who killed Brian, I know who shot Brian. So I was like, well, give me a name. So with that way, I can give it to the police, and then they could they could do their job with the investigation. So then they was like, oh, he go by the name of Russia. He go by the name of Russia. So I said, that's all you have? And they was like, yeah, we just know that that's the name that he go by. And that how he was bragging in the streets about how he caught a body and all this kind of nonsense. I didn't even know what that meant because I don't know street slang like that. Now, if the name Rasha sounds familiar, it's because that's one of the names Bobby shouts out during his GS9 roll call on Hot Boy. Back in February 2013, when Brian was killed, Hot Boy hadn't even been uploaded to YouTube yet. Bobby Schmerta wasn't a household name, which means his lyrics weren't yet being sung by girls hanging out of cars and celebrities online. Still, the name Rasha was all Radelja had to go on. 
one of the detectives that was working on the case, he, um, I was calling him a lot, and he always used to tell me that there's no new development. You know, we don't have anything new to share with you. We're still working on it. And then at one point, I just was like, you know, I just, I just gave up. I was like, I, I don't know what else to do. Months go by with no update. A year passes. And then 10 more months after that, nothing. When you don't have that closure, you don't rest. You, your mind just don't rest, you know? And I needed for my mind to rest. Next thing I know, I got a call. And it was from the detective. And he said, Miss McKenzie, I have some great news. We caught the guy. The, the two guys that um, was associated with killing your son. It turns out, police have been watching GS9 that whole time to build a bigger case against them. And in December 2014, Rasha was among those 15 people arrested the night of the Quad Studios raid. That's when Rodelja and Mariah learned Rasha's real name, Rashid Darrison. Thank you, God. Maybe I could get some closure now because, you know, it was bothering me that his killer was just out there, you know. So I was so happy. And at the same time, I was still sad. It's still not going to bring Brian back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Quantacy and Associates, a full-service creative agency and studio helping brands grow by pushing culture in the right direction while introducing a new era of thinking. With a business model designed to help companies excel, they specialize in melding the worlds of marketing, content, technology, and influence. Quantacy works with brands of all sizes, ranging from Fortune 100 clients, public figures, and small businesses. Find out more at Quantacy.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com louder to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. NPR's How I Built This, listen now. On March 1st, 2016, over a year after that raid at Quad, Rasha stood trial for a host of crimes, including second-degree murder. His co-defendant on the case was Alex Crandon a.k.a. A-Rod, another member of GS9, who, according to prosecutors, was Rasha's lookout during the bodega shooting. Rodelja was there every day in court for six weeks, watching. She sat on one side of the courtroom, and the families of Rasha and A-Rod, they sat on the other. Rodelja says she could feel the tension between them. You could just see the... The attitude, you know, they look at you and they roll their eyes and that kind of stuff, you know, like I did something wrong. 
And court is where she learned about a whole other world that exists in her neighborhood. A world that created what prosecutors called gang warfare. I realized how bad the area was really, really is. I had no idea because when I come home from work, I'm just in the house. I don't go outside unless I have to. So it was a lot of things that I didn't know that was going on. Here's the argument prosecutors laid out. On January 29th, 2013, Bobby Schmurter was outside of Kings County Courthouse in downtown Brooklyn. And Rasha and A-Rod were there too. They tried to pull up on a member of BMW named Lionel Smith. Lionel was coming from trial, so they knew he wouldn't have a gun on him. Shots were fired right outside the courthouse. But no one was hurt, and police couldn't prove who the shooter was. Then, a little over a week later, on February 8th, Rasha and A-Rod walked into Star One Deli on Clarkson Ave, apparently looking for Lionel again. Instead of hitting Lionel, Rasha shot Brian in the back. Prosecutors used video footage from the bodega security camera to identify Rasha as the shooter. But that ain't all. They also presented evidence to show Brian's murder wasn't an isolated incident. And they did this by submitting hours of phone calls between the members of DS9. The prosecution, they sent us some of those calls to review. Yo, what's poppin', bro? Ain't shit. Us never them, son. Talk to me, son. These calls were made over months to a GS9 member named Slice, who was already serving time. The guys called Slice a lot to keep him up to date on what was happening outside, including some shootings. These fucking jail niggas is gonna pop one niggas, bro. We come back, now we all post, you feel me? Yeah. Waiting for the retaliation. Yeah, yeah, waiting for the retaliation, you feel me? Yeah, regular shit. Regular shit. Rasha and A-Rod are on a lot of these calls. And you can hear Bobby on some of them, too which the prosecution would later use to include him in the larger conspiracy case. Hello? Yo, this Chewy? Yeah. Yo, you spoke to but we don't have all the calls the prosecution used in this case, so it's unclear if Bobby ever played a major role in Brian's murder. And in some of the conversations, Bobby actually seems to pull away from what they're talking about. Oh man, son. I'm going to end up schooling this nigga Dada, son. Oh, God, don't say that, what you mean don't say that, man? He's fucking playing with me. Like he, he says he's too busy making money from music to get involved. And it's hard to make out, but you can even hear Bobby warning them against revealing too much on the line. Yo, the fuck? I'm not saying nothing on the line, son. Nobody know what we're talking about. In one of those calls submitted as evidence, A-Rod describes another shooting Rasha did a year and a half after Brian's murder. It happened just a block away from the bodega. And this time, Rasha accidentally shot a woman in the neck while they were trying to get another BMW member. And on another phone call about that same shooting, Slice hears from a friend that A-Rod was rushed to the hospital because Rasha accidentally shot him. She's squirting everywhere and shit like that. Squirting everywhere? Yeah, you know one of them them, them movie scenes and shit. Just squirting everywhere. It's kind of wild to hear how casual they are about everything that's going on, all the violence. But there's also something else here. Not the words, but the tone. Maybe that casualness is just a front for how shocked they really are. Yo, bro, that's my first time seeing that. Yo, y'all took his phone? Slice learns that the wounded bystander and A-Rod end up at the same hospital. 
And A-Rod lies about where he got hurt and his role in the shooting. But police, they figured out the connection. Yeah, I took his phone. Nah, cuz I forgot that shit, bro. Y'all supposed to do all that. You heard that? Slice reminds them that the cell phone could be used as evidence. It's clear by these calls that these guys are not organized criminals. Radelja sat and listened to all this evidence in court with mixed emotions. And she kept her eyes on Rasha and A-Rod the whole time. Because it was hard to look at them, you know? And looking at them, I will never forget, I'm sitting in the back and they're in the front and they're just talking amongst each other like there wasn't, they wasn't even on trial. Like, What do you mean? Like, because they were sitting next to each other and they're just laughing and giggling amongst each other. And, that's what, and that had really bothered me because they was acting like everything was just normal, like they, like they didn't do anything wrong, like no remorse. During the trial, prosecutors repeatedly referred to the woman Rasha shot as an innocent victim. But Brian, he didn't get that same label. The prosecutors repeatedly referred to Brian as a BMW member. And they used that to show Rasha and A-Rod had a motive to kill him. Prosecutors pointed out that the guys Brian was with in the surveillance video were visibly upset watching him die. One broke a glass door in rage. They said that since those guys were BMW, that was all the proof they needed to show Brian was affiliated too. But for Radelja, none of that adds up. Yeah, Brian was not in a gang. And how do you know this for sure? Brian is not a fighter. Brian doesn't like to start trouble. Brian was just a sweet kid. She points out that Brian didn't have a gun on him and that he didn't have a criminal record. He's not about that life. That's not him. But what's clear is that innocent until proven guilty didn't apply to Brian. Painting Brian as a BMW member made it a lot easier for the prosecution to rationalize his murder as one of revenge. It's an easy narrative for a jury to understand, and one that the media has long reinforced. A black boy could never be entirely innocent in the first place. And because he was with people who were believed to be in a gang, that was it. It was guilt by association. Because they're trying to justify that's why he got killed. Like, okay, he was, he was, in, the, he was in the gang, so that's what happens when you're in a gang. We asked the prosecutor's office recently what evidence they had on Brian to prove he was a member of BMW. They told us a detective was willing to testify in court about Brian's affiliation, prove that his murder was an act of gang retaliation. But because defense attorneys blocked this witness, the prosecution couldn't and wouldn't tell us anything more. Talking to people who are close to Brian, on and off the record, they say, far as they knew, he was not gang-affiliated. But the reality is, affiliation can be difficult, sometimes impossible, to determine. Especially for people like Brian, who didn't have a criminal history. But you know what? That doesn't stop prosecutors from making that kind of determination anyway. All the time. Rasha and Arod were each found guilty of second-degree murder and attempted murder in April 2016. Radelja wrote a statement for their sentencing hearing. We have it here. Do you feel comfortable reading a portion of it now? 
I'll try. Okay. My son's killers are still alive. And I most certainly don't wish death on them. After going through this, I wouldn't wish it on any mother. But my son needs justice. And the killer should not be roaming the streets. My son will never be alive again. But Rashid Derisant and Alex Crandon will kill again, in my opinion. They have shot and killed my son in cold blood, and this action is something that they live by. My family needs justice. My son's younger brother needs justice. I need justice. Rasha and Arad were in their early 20s at the time of sentencing. Arod received 49 years to life. That means he'll probably leave prison in his 70s and spend the rest of his life on parole. And Rasha? He got 89 years to life. He's likely never coming home. A lot of thinking around criminal justice reform focuses on low-level drug offenses and nonviolent crimes. But we can't have a serious conversation about mass incarceration or how it intersects with hip-hop without talking about violent crime. This story is a prime example. See, there's this idea that violence is limited to direct physical confrontations, like a shooting in a Brooklyn bodega. But decades of research will tell you that's just the tip of the iceberg. The overarching wealth and education gaps in Black neighborhoods, that's a kind of violence too. Structural violence. An obstacle that you can't pin on one person. It's just the way things are. In a way, that kind of structural violence is what prevented Brian from graduating high school. It's also what left Bobby and GS9 feeling like they had few other options than to sell drugs. I mean, this is an area with one of the highest high school dropout rates in the city. And a place with high rates of substance abuse. And the way we interpret certain statistics about Black neighborhoods like this is another type of violence. Cultural violence. The stereotypes that justify mistreatment and marginalization. Brian was painted as a gang member to rationalize GS9's motive. Brother, son, basketball player, boyfriend? None of that mattered in court. Only a caricature of who they perceived Brian to be. Everyone in this story has experienced violence in different, invisible ways. So when you think about it, the forces that led Brian to be in that bodega that night with friends who had beef with GS9, they're the same forces that led to one of Bobby's homeboys pulling the trigger. And when that gun went off, generations of structural and cultural violence collided, and the direct violence became deafening. I wonder how Radelja made sense of all this. Do you feel like justice was served? Yes, I do. What does justice look like in this situation for you? Justice for me is that they will, they will have a lot of time to sit down and think about their actions. And, I'm, and I'll be hoping that while they're in jail, they will see what they have done to my family and that 
this would be a lesson to anyone out there that commit the same crime as they have to not do this to another family. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Marguerite Casey Foundation, creating greater freedom for changemakers to create a truly representative economy. Marguerite Casey Foundation believes working people and their families should have the power to shape our institutions, our democracy, and our economy. Shifting power, powering freedom. Learn more about the foundation at www.caseygrants.org and connect with the foundation on Twitter at Casey Grants and on Facebook. The past is never past, and every headline has a history. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Rand Abdel-Fattah, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Each week, we go back in time to better understand the present. Bringing lesser-known stories and perspectives to the surface. Subscribe and listen to Throughline from NPR. It's been seven years since Brian was killed. Mariah and Brian, they were only together for a year. But she says his life and his death have had a lasting impact on her. One thing that I would say, like, nothing that these guys out here can do can, like, break my heart. Nothing. Because I've, I feel like I've already gone through, like, the worst with losing Brian. And it's like, granted, like, we didn't have any kids or anything like that, but that was just, like, pure love for me and him. He showed me off to the world, and our world was so small. It was like, you know, but, like, everyone knew we were together. Like, it it just was a beautiful feeling. And I always look for that in guys, you know. She listens to the radio, and she likes hip-hop. But her friends know to turn off Hot Boy if it comes on. If I'm at a party, I can't go to the DJ booth and turn it up, no. I just have to sit there and suck it up. I'm home very responsible. And even though he didn't pull the gun, he wasn't there, he's glorifying it. He's making other, other people think that this is okay, that you can sit there and kill someone or do this and then turn around, put it in the song and blow up off of that. So, it's not a party song for me. It's a reminder of what they did. And those reminders are getting more frequent. Mariah is already seeing Facebook posts anticipating Bobby's release. Now he's going to come out. I feel like if he would have at least even acknowledged it that like look I'm sorry that this happened maybe you know it could be like okay but at this point it's like y'all are just heartless (laughs) that's how I feel like they don't have like a human bone in their body how many went down All these people in jail, Brian's gone, and all you have to scream is GS9, 
and BMW or whatever you're repping, like, it's not worth it. One of the last things we did towards the end of our conversation was watch a video that reminded Mariah and Radelja of happier times. Hey. Hey. It's a video Brian posted on YouTube titled Me and My Little Man Having Fun. And in it, he's teaching his younger brother how to do his favorite dance, the Dougie. Hey. Hit him one more time. Hey. He's, like he's amping up his brother. Yeah, he's amping up, <laughs> amping up. Hey, hey. Yep, he loved the Dougie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he was good at it too. Mm-hmm. Those shoulders were lit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Watching the video of them dancing, you see how close Brian and his little brother were. So close that when Brian died, Radelja says her younger son fell into a deep depression. It took a lot to get him out of that zone. He was just like stuck in this one zone, like, like to the point where it felt like he just gave up on life. You know, and I've been working and working and working and working with him. And finally, he got back on track and he's doing really good. He said to me, he said, Mom, I haven't been this happy since Brian was alive. How has it changed your parenting style? Well, it changed it a lot because (laughs) even my son told me I'm so overprotective. You have reason to be. Exactly. And I always tell him that, you know. I just just want my son to be okay. I worry about him every day, too. I just make sure, you know, I text him. He opens up to me about a lot of things. You know, sometimes when he's down, he'll call me like, Mom, I need to talk. Yeah. And it make me feel bad because I was saying, why didn't I have that relationship with Brian? Radelja moved her family to New Jersey a few months after Brian's death. She didn't want to raise her youngest son in East Flatbush. And Mariah? She became a teacher down in Maryland. She doesn't go back to Brooklyn, except to see family. But Mariah and Radelja are still in touch, and they text each other all the time. We're good. Um, we, yeah. we, we're, we're It's like my mom, a second mom. <laughs> That's what I called her, my second mom. Like... Anything major go that goes on in my life, like she knows about it. Any like anything. And anytime something is bothering me, I'll call Mariah. And this year, on the seventh anniversary of Brian's death, they got together with family and friends to remember him. Rest in power. They released white balloons with messages for Brian into the sky. Yeah, they're gone. They're all gone. And of course, Mariah posted the video on Facebook. On the next episode of Louder Than a Riot, Bobby weighs his options in court, stay loyal to his crew, or distance himself from his brothers. I thought a kid that age, with that much at stake, trial would was a nonsense. And now, while Bobby serves his time, the rap world waits for his return. 
I don't look at myself as a comic or a felon. I look at myself as a hostage right now. This episode was written by me, Ronnie Carmichael, Adelina Lancianese, and Michael May. Michael May and Chandrai Kumanika edited this one, with help from Shakita Pascal. It was produced by Adelina Lancianese, with help from Matt Ozug, Dustin DeSoto, and Sam Leeds. Josh Newell is our engineer. Senior supervising producers are Rachel Neal and Nidre Eaton. And shout out to the bigwigs. Steve Nelson, Lauren Anki, and Anya Grunman. Original music by Casa Overall and Ramteen Arablui. Our digital editor is Jacob Gans. Our fact checkers are Will Chase and Nicolette Kahn. Hit us up on Twitter. We're at Louder Than Riot. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to follow along with the music you heard in this episode, check out the Louder Than Riot playlist on Apple Music and Spotify now. We'll update those each week. And if you want to email us, it's louder at npr.org. From NPR Music, this has been Louder Than a Riot.